You can open your Bibles to First um, Peter as we continue our exposition. We begin this morning in, in verse 8. As you're turning there, I do want to uh, talk about um, what took place in 1746. Uh, Jonathan Edwards published in that year a treatise entitled, A Treatise Concerning Religious Affections. Now, some of you are familiar with that book. Maybe how many of you are familiar with that book? Some of you. Not, not, not as many as I expected. I thought a lot of hands to go up. I thought I'd reduce the hands when I said, how many of you read the book? That might bring everyone down. It's Jonathan Edwards, hard to read, <clears throat> but, but worth, worth every sentence in that book. And we do have that book in the back. It's in the, contained in the religious, the Jonathan Edwards two-volume uh, edition. It is there in the back in the library. But in that book, Jonathan Edwards described and detailed the marks of a, a genuine believer in Christ. Wanted to show what it was that characterized a, a true believer. The book was written actually in the midst of con- controversy. The decade before Jonathan Edwards wrote it, um, it was um, 1730s, 1739s, 1740s. Who knows what took place about those times in America? Does anyone remember? What? The Great Awakening. That took place. And uh, during the Great Awakening, uh, America experienced a great movement of the Spirit of God upon colonial America. Uh, it, it was unbelievable that at different places, kind of all at the same time as the Spirit of God moved, many people who were ignorant of the Gospel or didn't have much interest in the Gospel were suddenly awakened to their sin and they felt their own need for a Savior. And many were converted to Christ. Many were. Just all across colonial America this took place. Jonathan Edwards was a, a pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts at this time. And he witnessed the amazing things that the Spirit of God did. In fact, so amazing was it that he wrote another treatise before his treatise came out about religious affections entitled, and I'll read this whole one, A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God in the Conversion of Many Hundred Souls in Northampton and the Neighboring Towns and Villages of New Hampshire in New England. Now, when you consider, I think Northampton at the time had maybe a population of about 800. And he's talking about hundreds of people converted to Christ. One of the most encouraging things that Jonathan Edwards witnessed during this time was genuine faith in God and genuine love for God where there was none before. And it manifests itself in a variety of ways. Joy filled the hearts of many. The name of Jesus was on the tongue of many. Worship was enthusiastic. People loved coming into the the house of God to attend worship services. People loved to hear the Word of God preached. Many joined the church. Many had a a tremendous zeal to serve the Lord. And overall, it was a very, very encouraging time to be a Christian. I mean, isn't it encouraging to be in a church that just grows? Isn't it encouraging to be in a place where people are converted and you see lives changed? And then to see hundreds of those changed, Jonathan Edwards was filled with joy. And yet, over the years, something tragic happened. The fruit that at one time had appeared so beautiful and many had withered away. Oh, oh, to be sure, there was lasting effects of the Great Awakening that that lasted for decades. But there were many who just saw the Spirit of God working and then just got kind of got caught up in the bandwagon. We're coming because of the enthusiasm. There are some who had fallen away from their previous zeal. Edwards wrote, 
It is with professors of religion, especially such as become so in a time of outpouring of the Spirit of God, as it is with the blossoms in the spring. There are vast numbers of them upon the trees, which all look fair and promising, but yet many of them never come to anything. It is the mature fruit which comes afterwards and not the beautiful colors and smell of the blossoms that we must judge by. What he's saying is this, is that though lots of people flowered up and looked good, it's those that continued on that you judge where the genuine affections were, genuine religion was, and those that fell away were just flowers. And what seemed at one time to be so promising with so many flooding the church, exhibiting a mighty zeal for God, turned sour in some cases. And, and as a result of the turning sour, there were some in the church who overreacted to the religious zeal. And they said, if that's the fruit, if that's going to cause, uh, if that's going to take place because of this, let's just take away the zeal. Let's take away the enthusiasm. Let's be stoic. Let's be doctrinal only. Let's despise those things. And it was at this time that Jonathan Edwards wrote his treatise concerning religious affections. He tried to say, no, these things are real and they must be there. Your zeal and enthusiasm and passion and love and desire for God, they must be there for religion to be true. Let's not despise them, you over here. But let's realize that there can be fakery over here. Not everything that looks like religious zeal is genuine zeal. And Edwards sought to address that issue about the nature of true religion. In his preface to this work, he said, What is the nature of true religion? And wherein lies the distinguishing notes of that virtue which is acceptable in the sight of God? What is the nature of true religion? Is what Jonathan Edwards is trying to find out. And his main thrust was to affirm passion and zeal for God. But he pointed out by way of caution that just the mere existence of some of those zeal-looking things doesn't necessarily mean that it's genuine. Now, by religious affections, Edwards demonstrated from Scripture many times about how if someone is genuine and real, there will be a love for God. There will be a dependent trust upon God. There will be a faith in God. There will be a joy in God. People who genuinely believe will be passionate about God. Those who have true faith will have a whole heart that wants to serve God. They'll have a desire for God. They will enjoy God. Love for God will be abundant and fervent and earnest. And that's what Edwards meant by religious affections. Let me just give you some scriptures that he referred to. Affections like this are commanded in Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. That's what God commanded. To love God completely with all of your heart. Passionate love. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. God requires us, He commands us to to love Him, to serve Him. In fact, there's one place in Deuteronomy that says, Cling to God. You're commanded to have a religious affections when Paul said in Romans 12:11, "Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord." There's a fervency and a zeal that ought to be in the presence of everyone who loves Christ. The commandment comes in Psalm 33, verse one: "Sing for the Lord and sing for joy in the Lord, O you His righteous ones." Jesus talked about the blessing that comes upon those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are genuinely pursuing God. 
But you know, it's interesting about these religious affections. They're not just commanded in Scripture. They're also modeled in Scripture. Time after time after time. In fact, I would even maybe say that this is, this is as much more than the command of people who demonstrate their faith. Like I read earlier in Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. That's a testimony that's saying, I'm looking at the deer, he's thirsty. Longing for water to drink, and God, I am thirsty, and I'm longing to drink from you. That's testimony. Or Asaph cries out, Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. There is a heart and there is a passion for God that says there's nothing on earth I desire, but my desire is for you. Another testimony comes from the mouth of David. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I've asked of the Lord and I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. David says, one thing I want, I want to be with God. When it comes down to it, that's what I want. I want to be in His temple. I want to behold your beauty. I want to meditate upon you. That's, is that not a religious affection? Paul would say, Philippians 1, he's thinking about serving the, those in Philippi and he's thinking about his own upcoming death. <laughs> And he says, I desire to depart and to be with Christ. I mean, my, my desire is to be with Jesus. I am ready to die. And that's what I want. I want to be with Jesus. That is a religious affection that is modeled all throughout Scripture. See, true religion is far from a cold exercise of merely getting your doctrine right and then making sure that your behavior is right. Religion is far more than that. Genuine religion. Christianity isn't only about getting your doctrine right, behaving correctly. True religion involves the affections. It involves the feeling. It means believing what God has said. It means trusting in Him. It means longing for Him. It means being passionate for God. It means, as Psalm 63 verse 8 says, it means that we follow hard after God. That's genuine religion. Now, I say all that by way of introduction because when Jonathan Edwards sought to expand the nature of true religion in his treatise, he chose 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 as, as the key verse to launch all of his thoughts from. I just want to read for you 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. You know, we're not going to... Your notes in the bulletin, they're like all wrong. I decided 8 o'clock this morning there's too much here in verse 8 and 9 to continue on, so... This is a, a revamped message looking at verses 8 and 9 only. We'll get to 10 next week. Peter writes this, And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. By way of outline this morning, we're going to see three characteristics of true religion. They're all there in verse 8. Uh, verse 9 then kind of tails on. Uh, the first one this morning is that true religion rejoices. True religion rejoices. We even see that there in verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, there it is, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, if you remember from last week, this theme 
came up in my message last week. Last week, my message was entitled, Rejoice Always. And if you, just by way of review, look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, we see there about how Paul spoke about our great salvation. When you see your salvation, your only response can be to rejoice. It says in verse 3 that we're saved by God's great mercy. It says also in verse 3 that we are saved to a living hope. God's been merciful to us. He's given this great hope, which it says in verse 5, is reserved for heaven and us, for us. And, and not only is it reserved in heaven for us, but we are protected by the power of God to get there. This inheritance is so great. It is imperishable. It's undefiled. And it is unfading. And our only response can be to rejoice. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3. <clears throat> And then beginning in verse 6, he speaks about how greatly they rejoiced in their salvation. In this you rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by trials. So though they're facing trials, he said, you are rejoicing in your trials. And the idea here is that the salvation that God has given us is so great that we can do nothing but rejoice when trials come. Our salvation ought to be like a, a giant oak tree which casts its long shadow upon all of our lives so that wherever we walk, we're in the shadow constantly of our salvation. As, as the salvation comes, we see it. and We see how we're, we're shielded from the sun and that's where we want to be and that's where we are throughout all of life, even if difficulties and trials we have. And in that, we can rejoice so that our momentary light affliction can't diminish our joy in salvation because our salvation is so great. You know, John Piper um, described Christianity like this. He said, Christianity is not first theology, but news. He said, Christianity is like prisoners of war hearing by hidden radio that allies have landed and rescue is only a matter of time. And the guards wonder why all the rejoicing among the prisoners... See, difficulties, trials are coming, but we've got this secret radio. And we're listening, and we know God is there, and we know that the salvation is coming. And to the, the, the prison guards who are watching this, that makes no sense at all. You all are prisoners of war. We might kill you. Your, your circumstances of living are not good right now. We've got ten to a cell, few bathrooms, meager, meager rations. It's not good for you. Why are you rejoicing? But those with the hidden radios are rejoicing because they know what's coming. And that's the idea of First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Is that the salvation is coming and it is so great and it is so glorious that even in our trials we're still rejoicing because we know that our redemption draws nigh. And one of the things also we see here in verse 7 is that as we trust and we believe in this and we rejoice, it's going to be the proof of our faith which ultimately leads to the praise and glory and honor of God at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can see that there at the end of verse 7. See, it's not only in good times that we ought to rejoice in God. It's also in the difficult times as well. And the key is this, because our salvation is so great, it overshadows all of our life. 
And it's right here precisely that verse 8 picks up with the and. And the theme is, is the same. I, I could have called this Rejoice Always Part 2, but Jonathan Edwards was so great in my mind that I wanted to change it and talk about true religion. But even here we see in verse 8 that, that we're rejoicing here. And with these words actually in verse 8, I think that Peter is showing the key of how it is that you can rejoice in trials. People can rejoice through trials only when their faith is genuine. Only when their faith is genuine will people rejoice through trials. I want to begin to dissect verse 8. And as we do, we're looking at this rejoicing, which is the end of the verse. And I want you to notice how superlative this joy is described by Peter. He said here, You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You see, in other words, Peter's saying this. It's not just that they rejoiced, but they greatly rejoiced. And not only did they just greatly rejoice, but they greatly rejoiced with joy. And not only did they greatly rejoice with joy, they, they greatly rejoiced with joy inexpressible. Uh, but, but it wasn't even that. It was that they, they greatly rejoiced with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You see what Peter's doing here? He is magnifying the unbelievable joy that these people had. When these people were encountering trials, it wasn't the cold stoicism that, that sought to stand the ground and say, I'm going to endure it. I'm going to come upon me trials. I'm going to take it like a man. It wasn't like that. Or it wasn't even a, a, a giving away to fatalism. Okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. That's what it is. No, no, no. What these people had was a, a genuine joy in their trials. Vibrant, engaging, and experiential. As real as their trials were, so also was their joy as it abounded. I want you to think for a moment about the happiest moment of your life up to this point. The happiest moment of your life. Maybe it's when you won some award at school. Maybe it's when you got some big bonus. It's going to allow you to finally get out of debt. Maybe it's um, when you accomplish some great achievement. Maybe the happiest moment in your life was the day you were married. Maybe the happiest moment in your life was the day you witnessed the birth of your first child. Maybe the day you believed in Christ was your most happy, joy-filled day. Maybe the day you were baptized and knew the true joy of following in obedience to the Lord. Maybe even some gift as a child. It's a time when, at Christmas time, when you rejoiced more than any, any others. Think about the most happy moment in your life. And if you're anything like me, it, it might be difficult to pick one. Um, just because there have been, there've been many, it's hard to see one is, is just, just really high. I, I do remember particularly, though, if I had to pick one, and uh, my wife's not here, so this is okay. You can. I remember one time when the church started, and uh, we hadn't even had a public meeting yet. And I was in the home meeting with some men as we were thinking about and praying about Rock Valley Bible Church. And I was living in DeKalb at the time and drove up here to Rockford. And I remember just on the way home, 
when, when a lot of it hit me, things are in place. I'm, I've, I've given notice at my job that I'm quitting. The church at Kishwaukee Bible Church is sending us up here. And uh, we've got this group of families here that we can start with. And, and I, I remember going on the way home, just seeing the future clearly and, and rejoicing that what God is going to do at Rock Valley Bible Church. We didn't even have the name Rock Valley Bible Church. I mean, this is how early on it was. But I remember saying, this is going to go. This is a church plant. I, and I was thrilled in my soul. But, you know, I, I don't even know if my joy was like this. Greatly rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I'm not sure my joy was like that. But, but here's what's amazing is that these in Peter's day weren't rejoicing with a joy inexpressible and full of glory when something well happened. It's not when they were married or they had their first child or had some award or, or some financial boom came their way. It was, it was when they were facing trials and difficulties. That was precisely the moment that they rejoiced greatly and full of glory. I find it amazing. And I believe that the reason why is because behind their rejoicing came a view of a bigger picture of life. I believe they knew these trials were only for a little while. I believe they knew that they were looking beyond these trials. And I believe that they saw the day approaching when they would, as it says here in verse 9, obtain as the outcome of their faith the salvation of their souls. And I think that incredible inheritance defined in verses 3 through 5 that God is preparing someday for us to enjoy was the very thing that allowed them to rejoice so strongly in the day of their trial. And I think that is a mark of true religion. True religion rejoices. Well, second point this morning, true religion trusts. True religion trusts. And we see this again in in verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him. That word belief is easily translated trust. You don't see Him now, but you're, you're trusting in Him. That's my second point. True religion trusts. Now, I'm not talking about just a mere intellectual faith. I'm talking about a genuine trust that particularly when difficulties and trials come, you're trusting in the Lord through those things. John Newton said it well. He said, There's a time coming when our warfare shall be accomplished, our views enlarged, and our light increased. With what transports of adoration and love shall we look back upon the way by which the Lord led us? We shall then see and acknowledge that mercy and goodness directed every step. We shall see that what our ignorance once called adversaries and evils were in reality blessings which we could not have done well without. Nothing befell us without a cause. No trouble came upon us sooner or pressed us more heavily or continued longer than our case required. Our many afflictions were, each in their place, among the means employed by divine grace and wisdom to bring us to the possession of that exceeding and eternal weight of glory which the Lord has prepared for His people. Let me summarize what John Newton's saying. He said that... Uh, There's light at the end of the tunnel. 
as we approach that light, things start getting brighter, brighter. And as we start approaching that light at the end of the tunnel, things start getting brighter around us and we start seeing and understand the purpose in our trials and the purposes in our difficulty. And when we reach that, that big light and we look back, we will understand it all. That's what John Newton is saying. But until that time, we need to trust Jesus that our suffering now is for our good and for His glory. Until that time, we need to believe in Jesus. You know, oftentimes I have found when I've gone through trials and difficulties of life that, that in the midst of things it's very difficult. But I have found oftentimes that when you're, when you're on the back end of that and you're looking back, distance brings an incredible clarity. Have you ever noticed that? at all? Well, that's what John Newton is saying. And that's what we need to do. We need to believe in Jesus. We need to trust in Him. In his second epistle, Peter talked about how we need to trust in the prophetic word. The the prophetic word is made more sure. And he said it's like a a lamp shining in in a dark place. That's that's the Bible that we have. This prophetic word is like a, a lamp shining in the dark place. It says, to which you do well to pay attention until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Uh, until that day comes where you see the light in all of its glory, we need to continue to trust this prophetic word. We trust the Scripture. Because when you see the full light <clears throat> at the end of the tunnel, you'll see that all your trials and troubles came upon you were really blessings in disguise. Think about the way they're blessings. It might be that your trials and difficulties demonstrate to you, your own insufficiency to solve the problems by yourself. What does that cause you to do? I say, God, I can't do it myself. And it causes you to throw yourself upon God. It, it might just mean that these trials, they come through, bring you to a point of futility and trusting yourself. And that's a good thing as well. It might just be these trials bring upon your life, humble you. Have you been humbled by trials? I've been humbled by trials. And, and the one who is humble before the Lord then will be exalted. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. It may just be that trials bring you humility. It may just be that your trials forced you to look heavenward because there's no earth place to look. Or to again, quote the last sentence of John Newton. By divine grace and wisdom... Trials bring us to the possession of that exceeding and eternal weight of glory which the Lord has prepared for His people. And we'll see that when we're at the end. But until we're at that end, we need to continue to trust the Lord. And that's Peter's message. Remain true. Remain steadfast. There's something that awaits you beyond this life that will bring sense to all of your trials and difficulties and will make them seem insignificant. So stay true to the faith. Trust in the promises of God. They're sure guides to life. Now, it's interesting. As Peter wrote these words, he was acutely aware that his readers had never seen the things concerning which he spoke. In fact, the only ways any of us here have seen these things is through faith. It's the only way any of them had seen these things either. In fact, look at verse 8 again. Peter mentions... You've not seen Him. Though you've not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him. I mean, think about it. When Peter wrote this letter, this was written to scattered believers 
throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia. Now, these regions are north of Israel, north and west of Israel, like hundreds of miles. And Jesus, in his ministry, stayed around Israel, Sea of Galilee. Once he went to Tyre and Sidon, it's a little on the north in the Sea of Galilee, or on the Mediterranean Sea, but that was only 20, 30 miles north. And once he went up to Caesarea Philippi, which is a little bit beyond Galilee, but never did he travel hundreds of miles away. And chances unlikely that any of them had traveled all the way to Jerusalem and had seen Jesus during that window of three years when Jesus' ministry was taking place. Oh, there may have been the, the occasional one, but for the vast majority of these people, they hadn't seen their Savior. And in that situation, it's a great application for us because none of us have ever seen Jesus, I think, I hope, probably. We've read about Him in the Bible. We've experienced Him through our salvation, but we've never seen Him, just like these people. They've never seen Jesus, but they still trusted in Him. And I think that's the key of how it is that they could have a great joy is because they trusted in their Savior, their trials and difficulties of life. You know, we can often think that it would be better for us to have seen Jesus personally. Oh, if only I could have seen Jesus and walked with Him. Then I'd believe in Him. And then I could be able to withstand the, the wiles of the devil. But you know, Peter knew full well that mere sight of Jesus wasn't sufficient for getting you through the trials of life. You know, many who saw Jesus in the flesh didn't believe in Him. In fact, there were those who saw Jesus perform miracles and yet hated Him. An undeniable miracle has taken place. But let's trap Him by doing it on the Sabbath. There were those who followed Jesus initially, very interested, saw a miracle. In John chapter 6, you read about this. See this miracle, feeding thousands, and then are interested in Him. And then when the multitudes were there, Jesus spoke some hard words, and they fell away. When they found out about the real Jesus, in person, hearing teaching from His mouth, they didn't like it. In fact, listen to this. I'll just read it for you. John 6. It's in verse 66. Jesus said, For this reason I have said to you, no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him from the Father. He's there proclaiming the, the sovereignty of God and salvation. I'm telling you, you can't come to me unless God grants it. Then you can come. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. In other words, the more they saw of Jesus, the more they knew, they, they, they saw in person, they said, I don't want that, Jesus. So let's be away with the idea that we think that just seeing Jesus would help us get through the, the trials of faith and life because that's not the key. In fact, think about Peter's own experience. He knew that seeing Jesus wasn't sufficient for him to get through the trials of life. He'd seen Jesus in the flesh. He'd walked with Jesus for three years. In fact, even it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, that, that he had beheld the sufferings of Christ. He saw Christ upon the cross. He saw how he, while being reviled, didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He saw that. He saw him bearing his sin upon the cross. And yet that, that didn't help him. 
in Second Peter, he talks about how we were eyewitnesses to His majesty. Peter and James and John went up through the Mount of Transfiguration, saw Jesus transform, saw His deity come through in shining brilliance. It's amazing. And yet Peter failed several times in the trials of life. He was with Jesus in the boat. And the boat was sinking. And Jesus and Peter was afraid. He was with Jesus. And he should have trusted Jesus. Instead, he was afraid. When Jesus invited him to walk upon the water, he was right there on the water in the Sea of Galilee with Jesus. That didn't help him. His faith faded. And Jesus said, why are you... So little of faith. Although Peter had seen with his own eyes how Jesus had fed 5,000 people on one occasion. And if that wasn't enough, 4,000 people on another. And as they left that, they got in the boat and Peter went, Oh, we forgot bread. We're going to starve. We're going to be hungry. Here's a guy who just fed thousands. Where's his faith? Peter's being with Jesus didn't help him. Jesus predicted all his disciples to fall away. <laughs> Even though all may fall away, I won't fall away from you. And then there, warming himself by the fire, a little girl says, you were with Jesus, weren't you? Oh, no, not me, not me. He was with Jesus and that wasn't sufficient for him to carry him through his trials and difficulties. Even after the crucifixion, Peter wasn't filled with faith ready to take on the world. He was hidden in a room someplace with some other disciples, locked the door, let no one come in. So, so don't ever think that if only I'd have seen Jesus, I can get through these trials of life. That's not the issue. The issue is faith and trust even in an unseen Savior. And I think that one of the things that Peter learned was from an incident um, that he saw after Jesus was resurrected. In fact, why don't you turn your Bibles to John chapter 20. This is a, a good passage for us. We think about faith and sight. It's the story of Thomas. Peter and the disciples reported to to uh, Thomas, they'd seen Jesus alive. Thomas, being the doubter, said, Unless I place my hands, the imprint of his nails, put my finger in the place of the nails, put my hand in the place of his side, I will not believe. Well, the day came when Thomas was with them in the room. And Jesus said to him in John chapter 20, verse 27, He said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. <clears throat> And reach here your hand and put it in my side. But do not be unbelieving, but believing. Verse 28, Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God. And then this word is a word of encouragement for us. Jesus said, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. He's talking about us. Blessed are those who have not seen Jesus, not been able to put our finger in His side, but have believed. The blessing comes upon those who have believed. And I believe Peter was watching this lesson. He was surely there in the room and learned this lesson that day that those who have never seen but believed are blessed. And I believe that one of the ways in which they're blessed is that they can overcome trials because they have a faith that can look even to the unseen rather than needing and requiring only the seen. And then, the reason why I've turned to here is look at what happens next in John's Gospel. Verse 30. Therefore, 
Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. We may never have the opportunity to see Jesus in the flesh, but we have a book that testifies about him. It's written even right here in John's Gospel. In fact, John even says, this is astonishing. He said, I have excluded many of the extraordinary signs that Jesus did. You don't need to know more about the extraordinary signs. What I have recorded for you is sufficient for you to believe. That's what he's saying. I've written these things. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then through faith believing, you can have life in his name, even apart from seeing. And I simply say this, the Bible is sufficient for us to believe. You don't have to be scurrying about looking for the next best thing to believe. You've got the word of God. It's sufficient to bring about our faith. Faith, as the writer of the Hebrews defines it, is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That's faith. Woven into the very fabric of the way in which God has made this universe is that we won't have the opportunity to fully see Jesus. Rather, God has made us to exercise faith and trust in this unseen thing. But it's it's not unseen, like Kierkegaard would say. It's not a blind leap of faith into the unseen. The issue is that we're just removed. We have Peter, the apostles. They were eyewitnesses. They wrote it down. And now we believe in their testimony of what they saw that we ourselves never see. So it's not a blind leap of faith. But it is faith in what we haven't seen. First Peter, right? Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. God's given us a word to read. There's preachers and teachers to proclaim it, to teach us. He's given us books and authors and writers to explain it. And we're called to believe it. It's what we hear. It's what we're to believe. You know, Christianity, it's interesting. Christianity is a religion of the ear. Christianity is not a religion of the eye. Right? We hear truth and we believe it. Sight unseen. God is not made for us to see truth and believe it. He's made for us to hear truth and believe it. Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He didn't say, he who has eyes to see, let him see. He said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In fact, when Jesus wrote in the letters to the churches, the Revelation, the first two, three chapters there, he wrote seven letters to seven different churches. In every single one of those letters, he says, to him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen, hear. That's where our faith comes, not what we see. Seven times, he was an eye. He did not... He was an eye, let him see. But seven times, he was ears, let him hear. You know, this is much different oftentimes than we think. And there are perversions of this in different religions. I think about Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism, in a big, broad, general sweep of things, you know, this isn't precisely where general Catholic, Roman Catholicism is a religion of the eye. You think about entering any Roman Catholic church and what, what, do, you, what do you see, what do you experience? Experience the crucifix. Right up there, front and center, every Catholic church, the dying Jesus. 
as if you need to see Jesus die so as to believe and feel it. You go into most Catholic churches and around the church are the stations of the cross. Why? Jesus going to the cross. You've got to see these pictures to, to get them in your mind so that you can believe them. Roman Catholicism in the Mass. You've got to see the sacrifice of Jesus again. That's why on the altar they offer up Jesus again and again so you can see it take place. Roman Catholicism, a religion of the eye. Why do you think it is that so many Roman Catholics flock to sites of miracles? They want to see if they can catch a glimpse of the Virgin Mary. They want to see it. They want to see the statue cry. It's not just in Roman Catholicism. There's plenty in Protestantism as well that do that, particularly among the faith healers. Oh, if you just see the miraculous happen, you'll believe. I mean, why do you think they have these miracle, great miracle events? The fundamental presupposition of that is we heal somebody, you see it, you'll believe. Whereas the religion of the Bible is this. You hear it and believe it even if you don't see it. Isn't that what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 7? We walk by faith, not by sight. We look not at the things that are, are seen, but we look at the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And that's Peter's point. Our lives, we live them, ought not to be dominated by what we see. Rather, our lives, we live them, ought to be dominated by what we believe. Fundamentally, it doesn't matter that we haven't seen Jesus. What matters is whether we believe in Jesus, whether we believe what we've heard. You know, when pressures and difficulties come, our trials have a tendency to dominate our thinking. Uh, I think about a difficulty coming against us, whatever, persecution, difficulty in marriage, uh, difficulty at work, um, financial struggles, whatever. And the difficulties before us, it seems insurmountable. And indeed, apart from a larger view of Christ, it will be insurmountable. But true religion can rejoice through that precisely because it can, quote-unquote, see beyond that or because it believes beyond that. Maybe you remember the story of 2 Kings chapter 6 when Elisha and his attendant were in Dothan. The king of Aram sought chariots and a great army there and they came surrounding the city seeking Elisha to kill him. And Elisha's attendant woke one morning and then saw the city surrounded by all these armies and horses and chariots. They're circling the city and, and Elisha's steward said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? His problem was he saw the reality of life and that became so dominating to him, which was very real, causing him much anguish. And you remember how Elisha responded? He directed his servant toward the unseen. He said, don't fear. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prayed, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And he had a chance to see right, God's armies surrounding the city of Dothan between the other army, protecting him. It's a hedge of protection around Elisha that he saw. should have believed it. But in his case, he got to see it. We aren't so privileged oftentimes. We have to set our hearts and affections upon the unseen. It's the unseen in the case of our text this morning is the Lord Jesus. We don't see Him now. None of us have seen Him. But we need to believe in Him and that will take us through trials. Let me, let me just say this. That true religion rejoices 
True religion trusts. And here's my third point. True religion loves. Turn back to 1 Peter. We can see it there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, here it is, you love Him. If you notice, we've gone backwards through this verse. That's just the way it, it worked out in my message. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. You know, all the commands in the world to be joyful through trials, they're not going to help you in the day of trial. Um, I'm sorry, Paul, but rejoice always and kind of leave itself flat and difficult. Um, now that's, not, that's, not, that's not saying uh, not to look at that, but I'm just saying that commands to say rejoice can sometimes fall a little empty because there's not a reason behind that. There's not a, a help behind that. They're true, but it's a little bit like the commands of God, right? The, the command to stay away from coveting doesn't help our coveting many times. What it do is expose our sin of coveting that leads us to Christ. And so also our command of rejoicing, can't do it. Can't rejoice all the time. Well, you need to believe and trust in Christ. He'll empower you to rejoice all the time. But true religion loves, and I'm just going to say this, that genuine religious affections are the key and the thing that's going to help you in your trial. It's your love to Jesus that will help you trust in Jesus and will help you rejoice in Jesus. Think about it. When you can say, Whom have I in heaven but you? Beside you I desire nothing on earth. That's a love and affection for God. And that's going to help you get through trials when your affections are set another place. When you can pant for God like the thirsty deer pants for the water brooks, you can get through trials rejoicing. Knowing that the trials only give you more of a hunger and thirst for God. Psalm 42, Psalm 43, the psalmist was in distress. That's when he was hungering and thirsting. Longing to love God. When you have a singular passion to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of your life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to meditate in His temple, if that's your heart, if that's your love towards God, that will get you through trials rejoicing. When you can genuinely say like Paul did, I desire to part and be with Christ, and the trials you hear, the here and now, won't hold such a grip upon your life. Let me just give you an illustration of how, how that works. Um, I remember in our home growing up, um, I loved being at home. Mom and Dad, I just loved being at home. And um, I think there were lots of things in our home that weren't right, weren't perfect. We, we grew up Christian, but ignorant. Very ignorant. Went to a church, didn't teach the Bible, didn't know much. If I wasn't so central in our home. But, but here's, I loved being at home. And so you think about if my affection and my desire was at home, then think about when I'm outside at home with the... Uh, the friends of the world that might pull me and lure me to the world. You know, I'm telling you, I, it's not that I knew a lot. It's not that I had everything right. Not that I had a great passion for God at, at those points. But it was that, you know what, I, I love being home. And those things held no attraction for me. And a love for home really protected me in many ways from going astray into many sins, being involved with, with other kids who are out and about. Because I love being at home. Ivana, have I told you that a few times? <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I think parents, make your home be a place your kids love. Do everything you can so kids love being home. It will protect them from many things. And I think that this is a similar illustration here with Christ. When our affection and love is toward Jesus, there are going to be other things in this world 
that just has no attraction for us because we love our unseen Savior. And that's what's going to get you to rejoice through trials in life. I mean, think about me. When I, when I, I was out here and my friends were trying to pull me this way and do those things, and I loved home. And, and so I went home and they maybe tried to coax me away. Say, oh, come and be with us. We're going to have fun. And I was at home and said, I like it here. Their attraction of sin isn't, isn't going to pull me away because I have a greater attraction. And when your love for Jesus is great, you'll have a greater attraction there and you will rejoice at home rather than getting carried away in the sin. Let me just ask you, do you love Jesus? Do you love Him? Maybe you can say with uh, Elizabeth Prentice, more love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. I mean, I know I say that all the time. You say, well, how can I develop and foster a love for Jesus? I think the best way to increase your love for Jesus is to think about your redemption. This would be a nice segue into the Lord's Supper. But it is a way in which we are to develop and foster our love for Jesus. There was a day in the life of Jesus when he'd been invited to a home of one of the Pharisees. And when he was there, there was a, a woman there who was with him. And how, how that worked, she was... A, I'm not sure how that worked, but Jesus was there and she was with him. And you remember what she was doing? She was crying. And uh, tears were flowing from her, from her face and was dripping on the feet of Jesus because she was down worshiping Jesus. And then she took her long hair and she wiped away the tears on his feet and she repeatedly kissed the feet of Jesus. Now this is happening in the Pharisee's home. The Pharisee became a little bit irritated at this woman who was at the feet of Jesus crying uncontrollably for joy. Jesus told this parable about the one who had been forgiven much, the one who had been forgiven little. And the one who had been forgiven much loves much. But the one who has been forgiven little loves little. And Peter turned to this woman and said, basically, she's loved much. She's been forgiven much. That's why she loves much. You have been forgiven little. You love little. And when you see and understand the sin in your life that's been forgiven you, you will, you will love when you realize the grace that has come upon you. And I would say even this, to the extent to which you see and understand the greatness of your sin and your depravity that's been forgiven before God, the greater will be your love towards Him. I want you to think about the cross for a moment. When Jesus was on the cross, of course, we know that He suffered for us. I want you to think about how great His suffering was. How easily we can pass by that He died for us. When He died for us, it is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It's the righteous for the unrighteous. When Jesus was upon the cross, if you are a believer and trust in Christ today, He took the punishment of everything that you deserved. He faced the wrath of God for Andy for your sin, for Chad for your sin, Doug for your sin, Barb for your sin, Jerry for your sin. Right around, I could name every single one of you trusting in Christ. He bore all, and He bore all of that in the cross. I mean, it's no wonder His suffering was so great. That was the extent of the sufferings of Christ. And He willingly did it out of love for each of us. 
And, and how can we respond but someone who's loved us greatly? All we can do is respond to Him because of what He has done for us and love Him greatly in response. Well, that's what we're going to do as we celebrate the Lord's Supper here. We're just going to have an opportunity to say, Jesus, I love you. I don't see you now, but I love you. I don't see you now. I believe in you. I don't see you now, but Lord, I want to greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory at my trials. So we're going to have some men come and they're going to distribute bread. They're going to distribute a cup. This is a memorial service, if you will. Um, do this in remembrance of me is what Jesus said. There's nothing sacred, special about the bread or the cup. It's merely a, a pictorial representation of what took place on the cross when Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And so remembering Jesus. He said, this is the cup, the new covenant of my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so we are remembering Jesus today, though we don't see him fully. We're remembering him. And for you, those of you who are visiting with us today, if, if you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, boy, join us. But if you haven't placed your faith and trust in Christ, if you don't love Jesus, let it pass. Because Paul warned us in 1 Corinthians 11 that he who eats or drinks in an unworthy manner is guilty of the body and blood of Christ. And so I just encourage you, just let it back. This is for believers. If you're trusting in Christ, celebrate with us. And um, Because true religion rejoices, trusts, and loves. Let's pray. Lord, I pray as we think about the cross once again. May we look upon the cross where you died and rejoice once again. As the song says, once again I thank you. Once again I pour out my life to you who poured out your life for us. I would pray that we would look at our lives, examine our lives, and realize that we really have nothing in this life except for Jesus. There's no other reason for living. There's no other hope we have. There's no other way to rejoice through our trials and difficulties of life but through him. And I, I pray that as we lack these things, may we just pray the simple prayer to you. Help. Help us to love you. Help us to trust you. Help us to rejoice. And, and that prayer, God, we know might bring trials upon our life. We don't like the trials, but if the trials bring us love, God, bring us, bring them on. If the trials bring us trust, bring them on. So we let go of ourselves and we seek only for you. So I pray that we would worship you in this time as we sing songs reflecting upon the cross, reflecting upon your value. As we eat this bread and drink this cup, may you be exalted in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name.